Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Hans's Weekly Protocol Builders Podcast. As always, uh, we hope for this podcast to give founders and operators in Web3 actionable tips on building and growing dApps and protocols from the most experienced people in the space. Happy to be joined this morning by Amelia Guerton. Amelia is the Chief Operating Officer of Bundler, uh, a protocol that prides itself on combining the ease and speed of data storage on Web2 with the permanence and decentralized security offered by Web3. Emilia, I've just given a really short elevator pitch. Would you be able to explain in maybe a bit more depth what it is that Bundler does and what it is that you do at Bundler? Absolutely. And first, thank you for inviting me to speak about Bundler and what I do as COO. For those of you who don't know, Bundler is a data network that will enable the creation of a trustless source of truth. Today, Bundler provides permanent data storage that is optimized for performance, infinite scalability with unlimited storage, and composability. We allow users to sign in pay in any of the 14 tokens we currently support. We're building an end-to-end decentralized data solution that will ultimately include a Sybil-resistant identity layer, an unbiased reputation system, privacy capabilities, and the ability to curate which data you need in a repository. We provide data tools for maximum flexibility and ease for developers to build with decentralized data that will ultimately sustain their long-term growth. Whether you're a builder, enterprise company, or individual, users can trust that Bundler is creating the trusted source of truth that will ultimately protect their data forever. Yeah, it, it always seems to be the case, like when, when we speak to COOs in the space, that you're always kind of doing five or six jobs at once. You've got a really interesting background. Um, would you mind explaining how it was that you sort of fell into Web3 from where you'd come from before? Yeah, it's been a really long journey. I took an unconventional path as I'm sure a lot of other people in the space did. Um, but honestly, growing up, I thought I was going to be a music theater performer um, and then quickly realized that was not for me. I am very driven and competitive, and that just wasn't the right space for me. So I decided to do a complete 180, and I went to school for finance. Um, both my parents were <laughs> very surprised about that. But through my time at university, I really wanted to work for a large Canadian bank specifically in a rotational program, which in Canada and I think in the U.S. as well is basically like a one to two year program where you get to rotate through a number of different areas within the bank. Um, They help you get your certification. So in Canada, I did my Canadian securities course, my CFP, which is your certified financial planning. And then I was on my way to write my CFA. But it was actually at Scotiabank, which is one of the large Canadian banks where I first came across crypto. Um, We had an innovation lab that was focused on looking at new technologies that we can incorporate into the bank. And one of the main technologies that they were speaking of was blockchain. And it's always been a really, really big interest to me, not necessarily the the cryptocurrency piece or the financial application, but more of like looking at the underlying technology and what it could bring. Um, And so it was always a personal interest, but I never actually (laughs) turned it into a career um, because after I worked at the bank, I went and worked for a few Web2 companies, first going into sales at Salesforce, um, where started off in sales and then moved into marketing. 
I then got asked to um, join Snowflake and help build their financial services vertical, just given my background, um, specifically for product marketing. And then I joined Coinbase, which was a few years later after I'd initially discovered um, crypto and blockchain. And I jumped at that opportunity because it was going to be the first easy step in um, my transition into Web3. And I think the big thing that really drove me on wanting to go into Web3 is when I think about the things that really drive me personally, which is like innovation, futuristic, and significance, the industry really hits those three big sort of areas on what I care about, because ultimately what we're trying to do is change the direction of how we're ultimately going to help humanity. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but Bundler is a really great example of how um, what there is ultimately going to change the game for how we interact with the technology. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really interesting view on it all. One one thing that I've sort of thought about a lot, having done a fair bit in decentralized data myself in my role or exploring it, not not as closely as you do, but the sort of analogy from, say, like a snowflake to a bundler, where do you see sort of the big changes from data storage in Web 2 and then moving that over to Web 3? Yeah, it's a really good question. And what I've been researching a lot and what Josh and I have been chatting about is the concept of data ownership, data access, and control. And just from my experience at Snowflake and even Salesforce, um, like primarily what we're positioning to uh, companies is a way for them to um, take advantage of the data that they have either on the customers or other sort of insights that they have to ideally benefit their users. But ultimately, they are a large enterprise um, <laughs> or they're a publicly traded company, and they typically want to find ways that they can monetize the data that they've collected over the X amount of years that they've been in business, which I don't think is something that's completely wrong. I just think that the direction of how we use data needs to change because ultimately these applications have been not built in the best interest of the users because of these sort of other monetary incentives to try and collect more data over time. And so where I think Salesforce and Snowflake are absolutely amazing companies. They're great examples to look up to, especially within the Web3 space. I think the future of where we need to go for data is putting ownership back in the hands of the people who are creating that data. And <laughs> that becomes very challenging because there's a lot of underlying things that we need to determine as an industry. Um, one being like who essentially owns the data. Technically, from a legal standpoint, no one actually owns data. Um, and there needs to be sort of like regulatory changes in place for that. But I think what people more so care about is like having access and unity in all their personal data or even from a business standpoint. Um, if you're running a business and you have your data in multiple different places, um, 
and it's sort of being held by these three large conglomerates, that poses a lot of security risks. Um, and it also inhibits your ability to grow in the way that is actually truly possible. So um, I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for the shift to bring data ownership back in the hands of the either enterprises, projects, or even individuals who created that data, but then also allowing the access and control for them to be able to essentially monetize off of that data that's been created. Um, so there's a lot of different possibilities that haven't been delved into on the Web3 space, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, and one of the other values of sort of decentralized data that you alluded to earlier uh, was that of composability. Uh, and it can be quite quite a confusing and a term that has many interpretations. Sort of where do you view the value and I guess also definition of composability? Yeah, one of the things that we talk about at Bundler quite a bit is not inserting, it's actually one of our values, is like not inserting a certain bias on how things should be done. Um, so creating composability and being able to allow users to sign and pay in a number of different tokens essentially gives them the flexibility to build to their needs. Um, another one of our big values is like, building for our users and keeping that a narrow focus for us. If you're not providing the flexibility for your users to meet their needs, then you're not really building with your users in mind. So that's how we see composability. And then it also creates more expansion and um, camaraderie within the space because we want others to essentially grow their ecosystems just as much as they're helping us grow ours. Um, so yeah, that, that's how we see composability within, um, Web3 at Bumber. So on, on that note, right, in terms of allowing other people to make use of the benefits of Bundler completely in an, in an open source fashion, sort of, could you give some examples as to how that sort of manifests? Yeah. So the question is like, how would someone be able to sign and pay yeah, with yeah. composability? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we have a lot of builders who are building um, DApps using Bundler as um, their essentially scaling data solution, um, which allows users to store data permanently on Arweave. Um, so when they're building their DApps, they're using a number of different applications. And with Bundler, rather than them having to go, making the users go and have to acquire R, um, which is Arweave's token, um, which can sometimes be a very difficult process, especially for new people who are coming into Web3. Bundler allows users to pay in one of the 13 tokens. So say um, you have a project that is focused on Solana NFTs. You can allow your users to essentially pay for their data storage using Solana versus them having to go and get R to be able to store on Rweave. So it's creating this seamless, more seamless user experience that I think users are starting to expect more and more within Web3. And it's not, not getting into the abstraction piece too, because I, I want to be careful about that, because you're still allowing them to interact with crypto in a crypto native way, but you're just making the flow of being able to store their NFT permanently 
much easier than what it would traditionally be without Bundler. Easier and faster. Is that is that what you found most, say, maybe non-crypto natives have been using it for at the moment is sort of taking those consumer applications like NFTs and then using them to store on Bundler? I think it really depends. I mean, there's a couple of different use cases that we've seen. There are projects who want to provide the optionality to their end users. There are projects who've decided that they're going to use um, Bundler and Arweave purely as their data storage, um, decentralized data storage of choice. Um, And again, it kind of goes back to that optionality of you as a project need to determine what works best for the audience that you're looking to target and make a decision based off of that. We're providing the tools and the flexibility for you to be able to do that efficiently and then we're going to allow you to grow with us but we're not going to sort of dictate the way that it should or should not be done because um it really depends on on the project yeah and i guess another another thing that i'm sure that you have a very interesting perspective on given your background right a lot of decentralized service providers like bundler that provide sort of i guess a decentralized analogy of a Web2 concept, in this case being data storage, the easy path to go is to acquire, say, Web3 native clients. At what point and in sort of what manner do you sort of expand to saying, look, we now want to attract some Web2 clients. How do we sell decentralized storage to people who are using like the incumbent solutions? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, like as a project our size right now, the low-hanging fruit is going to live within Web3 because for the most part, discussing decentralized data storage doesn't need a ton of education. And that's an easier sort of win for us to get more users to be utilizing Bundler. We are still keeping our eyes very open for the Web2 players and have had a lot of conversations actually with um, Web2 enterprises who are expressing interest in decentralization. But what we've found is that the um, education time and deal cycles within Web2 are just typically much longer, especially for larger companies with um, very intense contracting processes. Um, yeah, those deal cycles take a little bit longer and the onboarding is going to take a little bit more time. And we're certainly invested in doing that um, because in order for us to get the mass adoption that we need to see to sort of cross the chasm in terms of like we're here at decentralized data storage, we need to onboard some of those large um, Web2 enterprises. And I think we're we are sort of going to win within that space is three different areas, right? So um, the security standpoint, I don't think is discussed enough within the Web2 data storage space. By having decentralized data storage, you're obviously reducing the security risks by um, decentralizing where your data is stored and not risking a um, one of the large three centralized data providers to sort of go down and um, risk a lot of the data that you have that could lead to legal implications, um, especially given the size of some of these companies. Scalability is also going to be another one too. So continuing to scale with your growth, um, that was a value add that we talked a lot about um, at Snowflake when we're thinking about like how do you ensure that 
you're sort of meeting the needs of your development team um, in terms of speed and scalability. And then the third piece, which is sort of interesting and not an easy conversation, but it's essentially getting some of these enterprises to start reimagining their business models to reestablish trust with their users. Um, there's something like 81 of U.S. citizens that feel like they have little to no control over the data that's collected about them. And then 93% of Americans actually consider it important to be able to control who should access their personal data. Right now, the Web2 providers are not necessarily um, meeting those needs. I think they're getting to the regulatory standards that they they need to hit, especially when it comes to GDPR and um, other sort of jurisdictions that have data laws. But you're not really focusing back on what the users are requesting. And I think more and more you're going to see Web2 companies wanting to reestablish that trust with these users, um, especially when those users are going to start having different options that are within Web3 that will allow them to sort of leave those Web2 companies that they don't always trust um, in handling their data and they have these new options within Web's free. So I think there's just going to be an eventual change for that group that we're happy to help them with, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. On that vein, right, you made a really interesting point about like having to reimagine business models for a Web2 business. So to sort of go down that rabbit hole a bit more, how should Web2 businesses that are relying on user data for business models uh, be thinking about decentralized data and data ownership? I think that those companies are really going to have to change and think about different ways on how they could do that. Um, there's like this this idea that I've been thinking about a lot is like, how do you ask for consent, right? So for those companies... It might be an opportunity, actually, for you to give a lot of the data that you have on those individuals back to them, essentially, and then provide some sort of experience that essentially allows them to set a level of consent on whether or not they'd like their data to be used in a specific way. Um, outside of that, there's going to need a really big shift for those companies in terms of how they can reimagine that data and that kind of goes back to the the original point of like data ownership is a really really gray space and very vague because there's no there's no laws on who owns data at the end of the day um so without those laws in place it's really going to be difficult to essentially enforce that change for the the company that essentially benefits off of using user data um, without asking for consent from those users because as more and more Web3 companies pop up, those users are going to have different options to go to. Um, and you'll see that they'll probably want to go with the options that are going to allow them to have more control and access over that information. Yeah, extremely well answered. I think it sort of hits the point about a lot of the current complaints about how sort of a lot of these Web2 businesses are using data. Back to sort of, I, I guess it does, it does have something to do with BD and also selling people on the vision, right? You mentioned earlier that a large part of your job is HR. What do you find are sort of 
the main objections that you find people have to working in, uh, say, like decentralized data or Web3 more generally? And sort of what, where are the big selling points for you as, as someone who does recruiting? Yeah, you know, I like to speak about my personal experience quite a bit. Um, I I like to think that I'm a risk taker, but then when I look back at my career, I'm like, well, what was I a risk taker? Um, because I, I had a, a mentor actually advised me very early on in my career to say that you should go work for a startup or a small project. And then I continued to work for large enterprises. Um I would say that there there's a couple of different ways that you need to sort of look at it, right? Um, there's a security aspect of going from potentially a large, um, stable company, quote unquote, um, and then going to something that's a little bit more volatile. We don't know if it's going to work. But what I can say is from my personal experience is that it was probably one of the best career moves for me because my personal learning curve and accountability in terms of me being able to show up to work, you're not another number at a, a Web3 project. Like you are showing up and your input is very, very valuable. So if that's something that you care about in your workplace is making an impact and potentially making a change, then I would say that the space is great, specifically with data storage. Um, I always make a joke and say that data storage is not the cool kid in the room. It's not like a sexy project that everyone gets really hyped out about, but it is sort of like the uncool wallflower at the school dance that turns out to be this like really rad, important piece of the space. Because without having a solid foundation within the space for decentralized data, then we're not really owning up to what Web3 is meant to be, which is providing um, an ownership economy. And that's what really gets me excited about the data space. <laughs> data is like as an economy in general, um, even outside of Web3 is like a huge opportunity and it has been a huge opportunity that I don't know if anyone's really, really been able to crack, especially when it comes to the machine learning and analytics piece. Um, so I am excited to see like a lot of those pieces of data start to be applied within Web3. Um, and I just think it, it's an incredibly exciting time. Um but yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't come without risk. It's not for everybody. But I will say you will learn so much. Um, you typically have some really great backers. And it feels great to be part of a community because being able to see your community members in Discord or Telegram or on Twitter, just talk about Bundler without us even needing to inspire them or like do any sort of paid marketing like we do very little to know actually we don't do any paid marketing and the amount of people who are incredibly passionate about what bundler and arweave is doing like that's special that's really really cool and to be on the ground floor of that and see that continue to grow on a day-to-day -day basis is something that you can't always see when you're at a big enterprise because they've already sort of reached this scale of growth. 
Yeah, you mentioned something really, really early on in in answering that question that I'd I'd like to dig into a little bit if it's okay, and that's about sort of the potential for uh, machine learning in analytics. Um, is there anything you can elaborate on that point? Because that sounded quite exciting. Yeah, I haven't seen a ton of players within the Web three space really hone into machine learning and analytics. I am continuing to do research on it. It's something that Josh and I chat about. I wouldn't say that it, it's our wheelhouse because we're really part of the um, ingest and transform piece of the data stack. But more and more as we continue to get transaction data, like we have dashboards that everyone looks at. And because of the transparency of everything being on chain or most things being on chain, I think that just presents a really great opportunity for data scientists to get into the market, which by the way, we're looking for data scientists. So if anyone's looking for a new career shift, <laughs> please let us know. I, I think it's it's a great opportunity to solve a new challenge that um, maybe hasn't really been appropriately solved in Web 2, but there's a new tech stack that they can tackle in, in sort of being able to um, not figure out, but like optimize Web3 analytics and machine learning for us to even like greater build applications and build networks that are more focused for our users. Because right now, I think a lot of communities do a very good job at um, community governance, uh, especially DAOs. We do our best that we can in, in capturing user feedback. Um, but it, it'd be great to sort of like get a sense of like how we can continue to hone in and like transparently show how we can incrementally increase the experience for our developers by leveraging the data on how the network is being used. But doing that in a transparent way, not hiding it from them. Always fascinating coming across mm -hmm. an, an open question like that. And you've obviously got a, a, ver a very nuanced take on it all. But you did also mention earlier that you deal with everything apart from the coding. That must be quite tough for someone who is also dealing with strategy and obviously has to spend a lot of your time talking to people who are obviously highly technical. How do you sort of go about bridging those gaps and sort of getting yourself up to speed? I'm really lucky. I have a really strong team of developers within the Bundler team. And then Josh is a developer at heart, but a fantastic CEO and founder. I will say that we balance each other out really well. Um, I have more of a marketing, business development, and like, I don't want to say human side because he is actually a very human and empathetic individual, especially for a developer. Um, but I just think I, I know where my strengths are and I know where my weaknesses are. But what I do think is really important is to constantly be curious and ask questions and not be afraid to ask stupid questions. And we have weekly lunch and learns. Um, we're constantly trying to improve as a team in terms of just being more knowledgeable within the space. And I definitely lift my hand up and ask those silly questions that probably every single person on the team already knows, but I don't know. And that that's something that I value, especially from a leadership standpoint, 
When I feel like something is outside of my wheelhouse of expertise, then I will absolutely lean on some of our experts. Um, so I think it's just sort of being mindful and humble when you don't know something, but always being curious because there's just so much information to learn. And the moment that you stop being curious, you're just not going to grow and they'll get stuck in your ways and then you're not going to innovate. So, <laughs> which we don't want to happen, especially within the space. Yeah. I, I always think curiosity is probably the key ingredient in the playbook for people who are maybe non-technical. I guess also sort of uh, parallel to that point, right, is in, in the BD process or whatever we want to call it, sales, there's sort of this argument about are you, are you selling the technological vision or are you selling maybe like a philosophical or a, another story? How do, you, how do you balance the two? And then sort of what is the, the non-technological -tech side of the bundler story and I guess also the Web3 story from your perspective? Yeah, I am going to like give a shout out to Salesforce because I feel like Salesforce is the best place to learn how to do any sort of uh, tech sales, tech process. And while what we're positioning here is fundamentally different because it's a decentralized network, um, the concepts and approach are still very applicable. So what I think is really important when you're approaching business development is definitely not to make any assumptions, um, but also have a perspective on how you can help this specific group. Um, one thing that I always like to lean into first is getting an understanding of what their challenges are. Um, I think a lot of people sort of skip that point because if someone doesn't have a challenge or a potential opportunity that they could be getting a net gain from, I don't know why they would go through the pain of switching over. Sometimes they don't realize that they have a need, and that is up to us to sort of determine based off of some of our experience. But the first and foremost thing is just understanding where their pain points lie and where that sort of fits in with their timeline too. Because you also want to be mindful, these are uh, projects that are incredibly busy. They have lean development teams as well. Their time frame not might not be right now, and that's okay. That's actually great if you find that out early, because you don't want to waste your time trying to convince someone who's not ready to have this conversation. It's actually better for you to revisit that conversation, unless there's a giant pain point that they're not realizing is costing them quite a bit of time and resources. Um, and resources can either be um, like individuals who are just dedicating their work days to that specific pain point, um, or it could be monetary resources. Um, so really honing in on that and then understanding like what they care about as a project is another thing too. So we might see something as being a big pain point, but if they don't fundamentally care about it, like it doesn't matter how good your pitch is, they don't care. Um, so knowing what they care about is also important, which kind of goes back to that curiosity piece in asking a lot of these questions up front before you even tar stop start talking about what Bundler is. If you're not getting any pain points from them, the other way to approach it is sort of understanding what the potential opportunities, and that's sort of like your what-if scenario. Like, what if there was a world where 
you could increase upload time by X amount. What sort of impact do you think that would have on your project? What sort of impact would you would that have on your user experience? So you're getting them to think about potential opportunities of how they can incrementally increase the things that they care about without them even knowing. So that's typically how we like to approach business development. And then we'll tailor our messaging based off of how we can help them, if we could help them. Because there's going to be scenarios where maybe we're not the right solution. And that's okay, because we're not for everybody. But what we're really focused on is improving that user experience through our performance optimization, through infinite scalability, and being able to allow users to sign and pay in multiple multiple different tokens. So, um, And then long-term, like as we look at our roadmap, there's going to be different types of solutions that we're going to be providing to developers so that they can really tailor the experience to their specific needs. Yeah, and I guess sort of to be a bit cheeky on the flip side of that, as someone who's closely involved with the running of a, of a network yourself, where do you see sort of the big pain points and challenges that, that you might want fixed or the things that you maybe weren't prepared of, prepared for when you came into the role? Oh man, on a, I'm going to speak on the operational side because I don't want to speak to the, the tech side of things, but um, I think when we start to look long-term for Bundler, our, um, our like community management and making sure that we have the right tools in place to effectively manage that. That's going to be really key. Um, internal tools is always something that no one seems to talk about. I mean, some people talk about it. There's actually been some good, perf- uh, not performances, presentations at conferences where they'll sort of so- show their um, their tech stack in terms of like, how do they manage business development? How do they manage um, hiring? So I think the, the the big challenge within this space, and it's even just within the startup space in general, is like establishing processes and tools that are going to work well for your community um, and then also for like your internal team so that you can be the most effective as you possibly can so that we can ship when we say that we're going to ship and then also communicate that to our users. So again, that's more on like the the operational side of things. I'm sure there are lots of things on the technical side that we can get into, but I'm probably not the best person to get into that. I I think internal tooling is just as fascinating as anything when it comes to how, how a network or protocol actually runs. Do you find that like a lot of the tech stack that you're using now for those things like hiring and sales and things like that are still mainly sort of like Web2 native tools? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, we do our best to have conversations with Web3 tools as well. But there's still such a huge opportunity for um, like decentralized tools to come into play. Um, and having some sort of like ownership over that, um, I'll say like, when you think about some of the things that we use, like discord, Twitter, telegram, those aren't decentralized. Um, those are like very traditional web too. And it's sort of funny when we look at that within the space is that like, 
we don't have any other options or we have very limited other options. Um, and so it will be interesting as we continue to see that. Like right now, there's a ton of node providers. There's a ton of infrastructure um, players that can definitely help on the tech side. But like the tooling that we need to be able to scale. And I'll say that there are some tools that I don't think are going to be able to scale with the growth that we expect um, is a huge opportunity within the Web3 space. In in terms of a- ambitious growth expectations, where where do you see sort of, I oh yeah, well, t- to the full extent, the end game, as it were, for for Bundler? What, what does it look like if if Bundler wins? Yeah, I mean, our end vision. We, we just went through like a whole exercise of really determining what our mission, vision, values are. We, I took the approach that I learned from a lot of Web two companies. One which is like a messaging house. The other which is a V2 mom. Um, So that's vision, values, methods, objections, and metrics. And this has actually been really helpful for us because it it provides a little bit more direction in terms of where we're going and why we're doing all these things and what we want to stand for. And what we concluded to for our vision is that we want to be the project that's going to decentralize the world's data, providing an open, transparent source of truth to protect humanity and ultimately set them free. So the way that we see that is removing a lot of these data monopolies, evening the playing field for both projects and companies to really be able to give back to end users and provide the experience that they expect. And I strongly believe in that vision. Everyone on our team has signed on and believes in that vision as well, which I think is really important. And then that cascades down the way that they're going to be creating their B2 mom and sort of determining what is their personal vision? What do they value as an individual? And like, what are specific methods that are going to help them get to that so that they are going to be the best version of themselves being part of the Bundler team? And I think that's really important in terms of like setting a sense of culture for the team as well, because it's okay if you're not passionate about data, but Bundler might not be the right fit for you. And that, again, is okay. But we want a team and a culture that is very, very passionate about what this future can hold. And um, yeah, we sort of hold hold our hiring processes to that. We also hold like the people that we partner with. Ideally, they also value this vision. Um, Otherwise, why would they want to partner with us? (laughs) So um, yeah, that's been really important for us. You you bring up a really interesting point there that I haven't really thought about a lot. But uh, as a COO, I think it must be something you deal with. And that's the point about culture at a Web3 startup. Like obviously inherently sort of decentralized tend to bias towards remote work so it's harder to enforce like a a central guiding culture sort of how do you how do you deal with that dilemma yeah people don't like to talk about this in the space because everything's remote it's hard to build a culture remotely it's really really difficult and i've heard from a number of projects that this is something that they're sort of faced with in terms of a challenge is like how do you establish a really strong culture if you're not meeting in person 
One of the biggest things in terms of establishing culture is sort of going back to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is like safety and security. And how do you get safety and security? You need to trust the people that you're working with. It's much more difficult to establish trust when you're doing it virtually. You've never met in person. It's possible, but it's more difficult. For our team, we are actually looking at a little bit more of a hybrid model. Um, We really, really value quality of candidates. And if that means that they're not going to be in the same place that we're located, that's okay. We'll figure out a way to get them into the office every other month for a week so that at least they can feel part of the culture. Um, We started out as a remote decentralized team. I think we're in seven different countries. And I say seven because there's two of us that sort of flip-flop between a couple of different countries, uh, one of which is me. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that's been difficult even just from like a, a time zone perspective. I think it makes our team also very strong because you get sort of um, diversity of thought with a number of different cultures um, coming into play, which personally I really value and I know Josh values as well. Um, so there's sort of given takes that you're going to get from uh, remote and then in-person because, again, if you're doing in-person, that's assuming that everyone lives in the same place. You risk having people sort of thinking exactly the same and not bringing in a different perspective on how things are in life because they potentially grew up the same way. So that's why we're approaching it from a hybrid model and we're still sort of learning the best way on going about doing that. If that means having people come into the office once or twice a week, and then um, people who are remote having them fly in every other month. Um, it also depends on the role. There are some roles that can be done just in an asynchronous way. There are some roles that it's really important for you to be in person and bounce off different ideas and sort of gain energy from the teammates that surround you. I know that's not a great answer, but it's the way that we're thinking about it right now. We very much value in-person interactions, but you also have to look at the realities of the world today is that everyone wants to be remote. And if they have an amazing candidate, you can't force them to move somewhere if that's not what they want. Yeah, no, I think I I disagree with you wholly. I think it was a really good answer. No, thanks. Um, and I think it's a I think it's a really interesting debate to be had, um, in particular within uh, the Web three ecosystem. Um, on on that note, sort of where where do you see that the ecosystem as a whole headed, like in the next five ten years, coming out of this current bear market? Yeah, I mean, I am really excited for the masses to start coming over. Um, I will say that because I come from a background and family and friends who are just so curious about my space, but uh, not, not my, this is not my space, but <laughs> the space that I work in. And I love educating them. I think there's like such a huge opportunity for us to continue to educate the masses. It will take time. It will be faced with people who are not going to buy into it. But 
the more that we sort of continue to cross the chasm in terms of getting more people on board with the mission of Web3, which sort of varies. And I think that's the other exciting part is that everyone can find their community within Web3 because there's so many different options and they can even create their own community. So the more time that we spend educating and the more time that will pass, I just think that within the next 10 years, it's just going to be normal. It's not going to be Web3 anymore. All these like funny terms that we have um, are going to be irrelevant, which I know is slightly cringy because we don't want things to become irrelevant, but it's just going to become the norm. And when that happens, I think that there is going to be um, greater opportunity for more innovation within the space at a greater speed that we've ever seen before, which will hopefully improve the quality of end users and businesses who have adopted this and really believe in it. Um, so that's more on like getting people on board and excited about it. Uh, I also see that and I'm not an expert in this by any means, but like regulatory and legal are going to continue to become relevant. And I'm going to say it is going to be important um, because there's still going to be a level of trust that is going to be held with these centralized institutions, um, which is our, our legal and regulatory frameworks in specific areas of the world that we live in. If we can get them on our side and believe in the mission that we're all trying to work towards and create a level of excitement around transparency, but then still instilling privacy, which is another big challenge that Web3 is faced with right now, I think that will be really special. And we're going to go through some growing pains, as we've seen in the last couple of months in terms of um, privacy and transparency. But those growing pains are necessary in order for us to get to where we need to be um, for everyone to sort of be on the same page. And my hope is that we're trending in the right direction to get more regulatory bodies on board and excited versus feeling like this is a bad thing, um, which I, I'm, again, always going to take an optimistic approach. I think we will get there. It's just going to take a couple of trips and falls and scraped knees before we get there. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting journey through the regulatory environment in the next couple of years, I reckon. Um, but I, I, I tend to be on your side. I think hopefully it's optimistic on the other side. Yeah. I'd firstly like to say thank you so much for uh, doing such a good job of, of answering some pretty pretty deep and tough questions. I'm going to leave you with one with a bit bit less depth to it. And that is, do you have any particular uh, favorite fun facts uh, to share with us this morning? About me or about Bundler? I don't... Anything. Anything. You, Bundler, the world. Yeah, I always love sharing the story about how I came about Bundler, um, if we can go into that quickly. But I actually rewind two years ago, um, first learned about the Arweave ecosystem in a cabin in Utah on my way to go kite snowboarding, which I had no business doing. I was a competitive snowboarder growing up, so I was good at snowboarding, but don't know anything about kites, which proved 
to be an issue when I was trying to kite snowboard. Um, but a friend at the time saw me working for Snowflake and was like, I don't know what you're doing with Snowflake. You should get into Web3 data, essentially. And he's like, have you heard of Arweave? And I said, no, I have no idea what that is. He explained it to me, wasn't quite grasping. And he actually said, let me introduce you to Sam Williams. I'll have a conversation with him. Sam is also brilliant, incredible founder, um, had tons of great ideas. A lot of it was over my head at the time. And there wasn't really like a clear role on how I could help them. And so we just sort of like left that conversation. And then exactly a year to that day that I had that conversation with Sam, I ran into that same friend at ETH Denver. And I told him, I said, hey, I, I think I'm ready to have or make the move, make the move to a smaller project. I am still really interested in data. Do you have anything in mind? And he said, yes, I have a perfect project. If you remember Arweave, they're part of the Arweave ecosystem. They've grown a tremendous amount. We, not even 15 minutes later, actually went to a shitty little Mediterranean restaurant in Denver, Colorado, uh, sat down and ate. Josh was just so eager, and I was incredibly impressed with just what he had been able to achieve essentially by himself. Um, Jesse, who's one of our lead developers, was working with him at the time as well. And I just started working with the project part-time, which was somewhat overwhelming because I also had a full-time job. Uh, so I literally had zero life. But I became infatuated with the space and I joined Bundler full-time in June. But that's my fun little story on how I discovered Arweave, how I got to start working with Bundler. And I'm incredibly grateful for that person who invited me onto that kite snowboarding trip because otherwise, I really don't think that I would be here speaking to you today. I don't think I would be part of this project that I just believe in so, so much. And yeah, so never say no to a kite snowboarding trip because you never know what will happen. It is, it, it is really a tremendous story. And I, I almost reckon the kite snowboarding bit's <laughs> the funniest. <laughs> yeah. It's quite great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anyway, it was absolute pleasure talking to you, Amelia. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I hope we've, we've all got a lot out of this. Um, and great, great hearing your views on a lot of these topics. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And if anyone listening is interested in Bundler, please check out our website. We have some open jobs that we're looking for incredible human beings to join our team. Um, and then if you're a builder, definitely check out our docs. So I'm just going to shill the project really quickly right there. But <laughs> we'd love to have you part of our community. Perfect. Thanks so much for listening to that latest episode of Hands' Protocol Weekly. I deeply hope you enjoyed it. If you want to stay up to date with our podcast every week, follow The Firm or myself on Twitter at Hands underscore network or at AHR Whitford. Even better, uh, if you're a best case scenario where this episode has motivated you to start your own protocol, I'd recommend heading to our website at handsa.network and reaching out to the Accelerator Investments team through our founder forms there. I've been your host, Archie Whitford. Thanks for tuning in and look forward to next time.